Well, we can go on to the topic for today, or rather the passage for today. We've had prayer. So uh, we're in Colossians, and I believe we got through verse 15. And we are now ready for verses 16 to 19. Chapter 2. Chapter 1? Chapter 2. Chapter 2. I should read out of the remedy. (laughs) It would extend it about twice the size, right? (laughs) But it's understandable. (laughs) Who haven't I had read? Ed, I haven't had you read in a while. Would you read? Oh, yeah. Uh, would you read first? Go ahead and read it out of the remedy. 16 to what? To 19. Through 19? Mm-hmm. Therefore, don't worry about the opinions of those who promote certain rituals, foods, drinks, holy days, or religious festivals as a means of being healed and being united with God. He knows these are merely symbols or metaphors designed to teach the truth of God's healing plan, but the actual remedy is found only in Christ. So don't be seduced by uh, pretentiously pious or allow those who claim to be guided by angels to trick you into giving up the healing found only in Christ. Such people write detailed manuscripts supposedly revealed by angels, but their only inspiration has been their own self-inflated image with all those types of fantasies and nonsense, such individuals are not connected to Christ, the true head of the church, from whom the entire body of believers experiences healing, unity, and nourishment, and grows as God has planned it for it to grow. Any comments on this? Well, this is really current day. Jennings leaves out Sabbaths. He doesn't use the word Sabbath or Sabbaths. Yeah, um, I, I think one thing is that as a denomination, we have spent so much time and effort trying to prove that the, the Sabbath that he's referring to here is not the seventh day Sabbath, but that it's just ceremonial Sabbath, that we have missed the whole point of what he's trying to say here. I really think uh, that the the major point that he's talking about here has to do, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago a bit, uh, but has to do with um, the way that we interact with each other and not to fight with each other over things. Even even if it's something as important as the Sabbath, our relationships and how we treat each other is even more important than that. And that that as we uh, interact it's it's often we it's a common thing that people will talk about well the end justifies the mean and i am convinced that in god's economy that the that the means is the end uh and that how we do things is every bit as important as what the end end goal is and that you if if in the process of trying to elevate the sabbath you beat down people around you you're wrong, uh, and that, that even if scripturally you're correct, if you're going about it by destroying relationships, then you are not acting as a as a uh, an appropriate or accurate representative of God, and that um, that as that Christians in general and Adventists in, in particular. I think often miss that and are are just sitting there ready to beat down somebody around them who they think is stepped out of line with whatever the the code is as they see it, um, and that uh, that that is just completely counter to the God's way of doing things. Well, that's part of uh, <clears throat> the psychology of what we call concrete thinking, as you know that mm-hmm. uh, they think everything is concrete. So beware of people that are uh, murdering with guns. So then what they'll do is they'll think about the gun, but not about the whole process and the psychology and the events about the person and just look for the guns. Right. Um, And it's concrete thinking has creeped into Christianity. 
And of course it did to the Jews, you know, they had so much concrete thinking. And uh, well, it's a, it's a much simpler way of viewing the world. Uh, and you don't have to think, you don't think. have to worry about these things. It, it, it either it is or it isn't. And it make, makes things very simple. Yeah, um, I, I think back to what you said, David, about it, even if it included the Seventh-day Sabbath, it's about not judging. Right. And I think of Ellen White's statement in Desire of Ages uh, 550, where she says, in, in all t at all places where principle is used, let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. Exactly. And, and she, you know, you think about how we've taken that statement by Paul, which we'll be coming to maybe shortly, and we've taken that and just blown it all out of proportion on the Sabbath. I think subconsciously, and we won't admit it, but in reality, subconsciously, I think we have we actually believe that Sabbath keeping can save us. But we know logically that's not true. And yet the way we act, the way we talk, the way we relate to people totally reinforces this idea that, well, if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're not going to be saved. So the solution is saying we got to keep the seventh day Sabbath. And then we fight over, well, what does it mean to keep it? We worship the so, Sabbath rather than worshiping Christ. Christ of the Sabbath. Christ is the whole point. Uh, and it's just meant to be a beautiful rest for us and to trust in God. But we've set up all kinds of cultural rules surrounding it. And we've even made it uh, the seal of God, right? The Sabbath is the seal of God uh, rather than the Holy Spirit. So it's taken uh, the preeminence uh, over in our religion and it's become the center point of our identity. The other well, thing yeah, is well, that first that's become the center of our identity is our food and drink. And that can be taken, and it has been taken in a very positive way, but it's also been taken in a very negative way hmm. and used to damage and discriminate against, you know, innocent people coming to our potlucks, for example. <laughs> so I think Paul's counsel to us is highly relevant about not judging people over these things. Well, what I think we've done is Christianity, with all the thousands of different churches, have taken it to a point that you have to be an Adventist, you have to be a Baptist and so forth to be saved. And that's that concrete thinking, that you only be saved if you belong to a certain church. And then you continue on with, you know, the food, the day of the week, and the other kind of activities. And this concrete thinking is destroying us, but the devil doesn't want us to be thinking. We're not to think. We just follow the lead of everyone else. So if the church says it or the, uh, someone else has an experience, we just believe their experience and we accept we we accept someone else's experience as real and make it like our experience. We don't, he doesn't want us to think through. And that's what Sister White, you're saying in the readers in the Desire of Ages, she wants us to think through what we're doing. And what you're saying there, that is uh, when, when you have to be a Baptist or a Methodist or an Adventist or whatever in order to be saved, in that point, all of a sudden, your um, security is in the organization, uh, not actually in, in God. Uh, and that, and so that is, I see being the single biggest danger of that is that it, it sh you know, shifts our, our, our eyes off of, off of Jesus onto an organization that is, has no, will, will always make mistakes and be fallible. I'd like to uh, mention something about something that's it's probably not the major thrust of Paul's argument, but I had something happen a, a week ago that makes it kind of relevant. They go into detail, this is in the middle of verse 18, 
They go into detail about what they have seen in visions and have become unjustifiably arrogant by their selfish way of thinking. Somebody sent a friend of mine who happens to be my prayer partner a message about it was a it's an actual podcast I think by a man who has claimed he's he's not an Adventist he's uh, an evangelical in persuasion I don't remember which church and he claims he has seen dreams that had dreams and seen visions and that he believes that something very terrible is going to happen in September of this year and tells the evangelical community to be braced and get guns. She wanted me to watch it, but in as, as we discussed it, I could see exactly all the problems that have ever happened with false prophets arising. A tendency to use fear as an approach instead of reason, a tendency to um, have those visions and dreams support their own agenda. Uh, I think of someone that I I, I critiqued and, and dealt with at a time in my life when I was a little unstable and not thinking too clearly. His name was Ernie Knoll, and he was an Adventist, and he claimed to be having dreams. And he would write out his dreams, and a lot of them were trivial. Like he dreamed he saw Ellen White writing. Nothing else in the dream, just Ellen White writing. And I was like, well, so what? What was that about? And he, he claimed he dreamed that he was in heaven, and he had a pet, and he went and left the pet to go someplace, came back the pet, let him know that he was missed. And, and I was like, yo, so what is that about? <laughs> you know, um, all these trivial things. And it finally turned out that this man got caught up with by his own board, by his own board chair, caught him making up things and putting them in emails. The, the man had a board that governed him. Oh, I see. And the board chair exposed him, and he had to move to another state and start over in the same institution, the same organization. Yeah, but the board that governed him was a private board connected to his church. It may have been the church board. And they did that because he had dreams? No, because he was telling about, he was telling about a, a prostitute that he was ministering to who had been converted, and he showed everybody an email. He sent around an email by her to him. And it turned out he created that email, not she. There was no prostitute. There was no nothing to it. He was just making it up. He was sick in the head. Yeah, he was. But, but you see, uh, people who are gullible and not really watching things and looking at things critically and doing critical thinking, and easily be swept away by that. So I, I, I thought uh, even here there's apparently legitimate dreams they're having or legitimate visions, but it's making them selfish and arrogant. Remember, Paul's in this writing in a setting where a lot of people have visions and dreams, and then they report them at, at church. So you can even be legitimately having visions and dreams, which is not common in our day, but it can make you selfish and arrogant. I, I think you don't even have to have visions and dreams to become arrogant. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, well, what I mean is, you know, I, I know a lot of people, and even myself, who just exposing herself to scripture see all kinds of amazing insights things pouring out all the time but the temptation is always there to think that somehow that makes you more valuable and i have to guard against that all the time and keep reminding myself no this is a privilege this isn't you know if if god's revealing stuff to us then we can share it certainly but we can't think that somehow 
you know, or the, something more important to God than everybody else. Yeah, yeah, and and yes, it's wonderful to be a channel, and whether that's through a vision or a dream or just insights or you know epiphanies or whatever, that's wonderful, and I think we need to value that. But that doesn't mean that what we say is infallible. Um, doesn't mean that we can start leveraging that for other people. I believe that God gives things to people, first of all, to to apply to their life and to take seriously themselves. And maybe at times to to maybe offer correction to other people, but it's never anyone's job to go out and try to control what people think. And I think that's where we get in trouble is when we think, oh, wow, I've, I know God better than other people. Therefore, I, I have the authority to be able to tell them what they should be believing or thinking. And that's, that's satanic, really. Well, that reminds me exactly of what the disciples did. As a human, and I think it is a human, we want to be with the Lord. We want to make sure we're saved and so forth. So we want to make sure we got a connection. So we can do that through our dreams and so forth and what we tell people. But that's what the disciples were doing. They were wondering, well, who's going to be on the left side and the right side and what's their position and stuff. Because that's that human, we, we want to feel connected. And that's not a negative thing, but like our partners, we, we do things, we tell them things that we know, that we've learned, and you know how smart we are because we want to feel that connection. And that's, that's a God-given thing, that connection. But, of course, we, we misuse it and misdirect it. But that connection is really important. But it's important to be able to use critical thinking, as Jane says, to think through how we do this connection. Well, it, it seems to me that we're not the ones that connect ourselves to the head. The head connects himself to us. And we can break that connection. But... He's the one that has to develop that connection. We don't. We don't develop it ourselves. Well, we think we can some way manage our salvation. You know. The last couple of days, I've been studying Jeremiah nine, twenty three and twenty four, which also, you know, God says you need to boast about knowing me, and knowing what I'm like. Get your identity not from wealth or, or from your wisdom you know, or, or from your strength, but be willing to boast that you know me, that you understand, and that I exercise justice and loving kindness. And, and I've really been dwelling on that, which I remember when I first started looking at that years ago, it felt a bit strange because I was always conditioned to believe that boasting of any kind was a sin. And here God's saying, you need to boast. Uh, and I remember reading something from Oswald Chambers years ago in My Utmost for His Highest that was very profound. And he said something to the effect that, that the things that we brag about are things that we would be ashamed of in the light of heaven. And the things we're ashamed about are things that heaven wants us to brag about. I think the text actually says those who boast should boast. In other words, if you're given to boasting, boast about this because it will humble you and make you less likely to boast. That's how I'm reading the text. That if, if we really know and understand him, we won't boast in, in the sense of putting ourselves out. We will boast in putting God out. That God will be the center point of, of what we talk about and everything instead of bringing ourselves into it or using it to make ourselves feel more valuable. There's nothing that can make us more valuable to God. We're already valuable. Uh, we're valuable by right of creation and by redemption, and nothing can change that. If if we all realized that, I think we would be a little less controlling. But I may be wrong. 
a little bit earlier, um, Floyd had made a, a comment and then Ed uh, did as well that uh, kind of touched on, I think, something that's very um, central to this uh, passage that we've been talking about. And that had to do with it not being our job to convince people of what's right and what's wrong. And that uh, ultimately only the Holy Spirit can convict uh, a person of sin. And so, and that when we feel the need to step in and say, well, but we have, I know something that they clearly don't know and they need to get that right. We run the risk of people as, as we move closer uh, to God, it's, it's a step-by-step thing. And, that there's one next step that needs to be taken care of first before we can move on to these other things. Uh, And if you try to start taking these things out of order, you can end up actually doing far more damage than, than help. And so I think that that's a good reason for letting God deal with in the lives of each of us to be the one to, to highlight, okay, this is the next thing we need to work on and, and it need to move through. Which then, if I free that up and say, "Okay, God, I'm going to leave that to you," and so I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell Ed that that he's got to deal with this, and that Katrina's got to deal with this, and that Gene, you've got to deal with that, and you know, and make it my job to to be pointing out what everybody needs to be working on. Then that frees me up simply to to love and to to be there to help support your relationship with God in whatever way I can to help so that you can hear his voice as, uh, as clearly as possible. Now that doesn't mean that we can't have discussions about things. And as we work through these things, I think there's certainly a place uh, for even spirited debate about, um, about various concepts and what it means and how we should apply it in our lives. But at the end of the day, I can't then turn around and say, "Well, I'm right, you're wrong. You need to, you know, to to shape up." And that that my role is simply to help to support you as, in your journey, just as you're there to help support me in mine. And then ultimately, we'll probably both find out that maybe both of us had some truth and some error, and. Uh, or maybe we're both completely off base, uh, but that ultimately the, the, the minute I take over my role as being the, the arbiter of what's right and wrong, um, I'm in a position to start creating all kinds of damage. Okay, that's a nice um, encapsulation, I think, of the thrust of the passage. Shall we go on to verse 20? Verses 20 to 23. Katrina, would you read this? Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Any comments or questions? So what he's saying is this focusing on the, on the human effort. And that's part of what we're saying is that our focus shouldn't be on our human effort. We should focus on the guidance and, and the constructs of the Lord rather than the world's constructs. So I would guess he's talking about controlling people in a church who make up their own rules to follow, sort of like the church manual. I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't pick on the church manual. I realize. Go right ahead. <laughs> it is exploited. I, I know people who've been thrown out of a church because someone saw them buying a, a block of cheese at Safeway. My my yeah. uncles, I had two uncles who were thrown out of the church as teenagers 
because they went to a movie theater after after church to get a pickup for a ride home. They didn't even go in the theater. Somebody just drove by and saw them there, made the worst assumption, and they got kicked out of the church. This was back in the 1950s, I think. The good old days. Mm -hmm. When judging was acceptable. Yeah. One of them. One of them never came back. The other one eventually did, but it was not a pretty picture that they went through. Yeah, that is so much damage. I, I, that makes me think of uh, when I was a oh in my late teens. Uh, I had one of my best friends was working in construction during the summer. And there was one of the guys on the site there that had had a lot of questions about God and different things. And, and Dan had asked him to, well, why don't you come to church you know, with them? They said, well, you know, and so he, he, he actually came um, and wore the best clothes he had, which happened to be a, a, a relatively new pair of, of jeans and a, and a shirt. Hadn't made it even halfway through the foyer before some, I'm sure she was well-meaning, but uh, the lady comes up to him and, and just starts berating him about how dare you come into the house of God wearing jeans and, and whatever. And he turned around and he left and he never, and didn't want to talk about God anymore with, with him afterwards. Uh, and that just shut him down completely. It wasn't too many um, years ago that I saw something equal to that in front of me during a church service. Here at PUC. At PUC. I slipped into a pew with some friends of mine and sat down beside them. I was right on the aisle. And ahead of me, a man was sitting there. I don't think he came after I sat down, but he might have. I just don't remember that detail. And he was a big man, so he quite blocked my view. And that was fine with me. I Because of who was speaking, I wasn't interested in being really aware because I always struggled with that. I didn't always struggle, but I was struggling that day with that person's sermon. So I wanted to hide kind of because I knew there might be an altar call at the end and I didn't really want to, to join. And so uh, along comes this man and he told the man, you shouldn't sit in front of this little woman. You get up and move for her. And I said, he's okay. <laughs> I said, he's okay. I kept saying that. No, you should get up and move. And then he marched down the aisle didn't think about how he might be interrupting the service himself. <laughs> and this man, it was the first time in years he had come back to church because one of my friends was in that pew with me and saw it happen too and knew that fact. And he got up and walked out and I didn't see him again for a long time. I think Satan has special agents to do that kind of thing in church. I think so. That's why it's better not to have church because when we're on Zoom, <laughs> yeah, I agree. We have to go through all of this. Mm -hmm. yeah, actually, I was worried this morning about my parents for being in Sabbath school, right? I'm sitting here in a t shirt because when I came over here, I've been I wanting to say something about that because actually. Because you didn't shave. Well, I did shave. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I thought you were some religious figure there in your robe. I didn't realize oh, it was a teacher. <laughs> oh, I, I spoiled it, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I thought I had a dress shirt because I keep some clothes here, and when I got here, it wasn't here. And so I, I don't have one. You know, I'd have to drive back to where I was staying previously, and I thought about asking to borrow one, and I thought, well, I mean, what's wrong with being informal? <laughs> Some people come in their bathrobes, so <laughs> maybe, you know, <laughs> but the idea of having this go through my head even is I'm worried about what people think or what people will judge. Yeah, well, we're just happy you're here. I have a question about yes. where it says here that these are a shadow of things to come. We haven't really talked about that. 
You know, is well, it, according is to Paul, the shadow of things to come is well. I don't know. There's a whole list of things there that he's saying are shadows of things to come, and I've never really had it clear in my mind what what that means. Okay, the, uh, let me give you the traditional spiel on this, and then we can talk about it. The traditional spiel is that the the new moon observance, which was the first day of the month, lunar month, uh, that everybody had a festival and and worshipped Yahweh. Uh, you can see where that's done in in First Samuel. And Sabbaths, a festival. Of course, there's there are seven festivals that the, the Jewish people kept. And then there are certain festivals where you have a Sabbath that is you're supposed to rest and you're not supposed to do any work on that day. Yeah, some Most of those are referred to as Sabbath regardless of what day of week it was. Right. I have lots yeah. of friends who are very much into that, so <laughs> yeah, they're still keeping uh, all those. Right, and consequently I've had students miss class for that. Um, so that's the traditional spiel. But suppose that Sabbath included all Sabbaths. Is the Sabbath a shadow of thing to co- things to come? Now, we know from Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about the shadows, the shadows have to do with the sacrificial system. So if you're doing cross-texting, that, that could be a place to go. But the Sabbath does point to something, for a shadow if you think about it in the natural world, a shadow from a tree uh, indicates the presence of that tree. And it points ahead or points us, I should say, points us back to the tree. But in the case of how it's been used in the Bible, it's to point ahead to someone who fulfills that, sh- that shadow. So in the sacrificial systems, Jesus fulfilled that shadow. And therefore, we don't do sacrifices anymore. In terms of the Sabbath, does the Sabbath point ahead to anything? Absolutely. Well, the, thing, the things you list here is eating, drinking, feast day, new moon, and Sabbath day, which I don't know if any of those involve sacrifices. Uh, festivals always did. Eating and drinking, they, drank, they actually ate the sacrifice. Okay. So they sacrificed, say, a, a bullock, and then they would fry the, uh, or cook the meat on the altar, and then they would break off hunks of it and pass it around. It was a barbecue, community barbecue. Yeah, that's where Weber started. <laughs> I, well, so, I believe that Hebrews 4, talking about there still remains a rest because they have not yet entered into the rest. Tell me that there is something coming that we're supposed to take hold of now that has not yet happened. That's right. So the Sabbath does have a point to it that points ahead to the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth. Where there's rest. Where there's rest. Mm -hmm. So we kick the can down the road to the new earth. What did you say, Katrina? Oh, I just said I thought we were going to be busy in heaven. <laughs> it points to heaven. Be building houses and planting gardens. But it does say, it does say that we will rest on the seventh day in heaven. But that rest can also be from pain, suffering, all the things that we see and have in this world. I think that's how Hebrews is meaning it. So there's a rest for the people of God to rest from all their labor and suffering. We don't have to labor in the new earth like we're going like we labor here. And I, I, I in addition to that, find um, it very meaningful or, or uh, comforting to remember that Sabbath is pointing to the fact that just in, in the process of being able to get to the heaven and, and that just the whole salvation process um, that I can rest in God and let him do the work that's required for that. That it's not something that I no amount of work on my part is going to get me there. And so I can just rest assured in 
Christ promised that, that he has done everything that's necessary. And I think that's what that he's really pointing to, is that rest. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. Uh, that rest that Joshua gave in them did not turn out to be rest because they didn't trust God. It was, they kind of went into the promised land. We're going to do it our way. We're going to fight our way in. We're not going to let God take care of it. Which I think is interesting. I've been reading through um, in, you know, the, the Pentateuch here recently as I've been going through. And it, it's just interesting that initially God is saying, when we get there, I will drive them out. I'm going to yeah. send, I'm going to send hornets and wild yeah. animals and whatever. They will leave of their own volition, and then you will have uh, have all this. There will be no need to burn them up. There'll be no need to do to to they kill them. To yeah. kill them. And but the, they didn't go along with that and didn't trust that God would do that, and so then it ended up right there in Joshua. How no, they didn't. That's the rest they never entered into. They took things into their own hands. They used violence because they believe that God uses violence. And that's why we haven't yet entered into the rest, because we tend to believe the same things they believe, that we have to fight to defend ourselves or defend God. Yeah. Yeah, which gets us back to those instances we were talking about, of the way we've seen people abuse other people in church, which I was... As you were telling about your uh, incidents there, and I forget who it was that said, maybe I think it was Floyd that said that uh, that uh, Satan has his his agents infiltrated into churches, just looking for opportunities to uh, take care of them. That made me think of in the first chapter of Mark, it talks about when Jesus went to Capernaum, and then on the Sabbath they went to the synagogue. And it was while they were there in the synagogue that he ends up actually being confronted uh, by a, a person there who was demon-possessed who he ends up healing. Um, and so right there in the midst of church was a demon-possessed person who it was only when confronted by coming face-to-face -face with God uh, that, that that was, uh, was revealed within that person. Uh, prior to that, I don't think they realized that, that he was actually demon-possessed. It doesn't appear from the story that, that that was the thing, that it was only when coming face-to-face -face with Jesus that all of a sudden this was revealed in this person, and then he was ultimately set free. And so, I mean, how many people are there in churches who are in that same position, who are being controlled by Satan, but it's only when coming face-to-face -face with, with Christ that we will be able to see that? Um, and that would be revealed in their lives. And I mean, he may have been one of the head elders of the synagogue there. We don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, that reminds me of something I read recently that really surprised me. I, I shouldn't, yeah, it did surprise me, but it, it amazed me also. Um, I've been reading through Manuscript Releases, Volume 13. And there's a letter that Ellen White wrote to apparently the son of a major leader in the church who was a grown man. And she said that demons were controlling him. And she talked about how he would, he would say something that he thought was his own, but it was actually a demon talking through him. But it was the most kind, caring, supportive, letter I have ever read by Ellen White. She did not condemn him. She did not rebuke him and tell him, you got to clean up your act or, or whatever. She just counseled him what to do to deal with it through Christ. And she was very tender, I felt, about how she handled it. She, she saw him as a victim. She did not see him an evil person. It was very clear from the letter. Uh, and I thought, what a model to follow. You know, we're so condemnatory and so judging of people in their journeys. And I think that that has a lot to do with that. That really highlights one, one thing that being able to tell what the source of the source of our comments or our thoughts or whatever are that, that Jesus 
you know, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us or prompting us to speak to someone else, it will always be redemptive. It will always be building up. It will always be healing. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if it's a, a demonic influence, it's going to tear down. It's going to um, be condemnatory. It is going to, you know, to minimize, not minimize, but to actually destroy or to, to try and um, break down a person or the relationships or whatever. And so that, you know, that, so that, that comes back to, you know, says, well, whatever is, is kind and good and helpful. And these are the things that we should, that we should talk about and spend our time thinking about. Uh, and that, but it's so easy to fall into these other, other things and think that we're, not only protecting us, but that we're that we're defending God somehow in the process of doing this, and and by doing that, we're completely misrepresenting Him and actually tearing Him down, or at least an, an image of Him. Apart. Right. Another thing that struck me is about that uh, situation is Christ, the way He treated the demon. Christ knew that demon; they lived together. Right. Whatever time period in heaven, he knew who the demon was, and it just shows his love and grace. How extreme that is! All this conflict, Christ just removed the demon. He didn't, and the demon was afraid what Christ was going to do. He knew Christ, and Christ just removed the demon. It's uh, it's another example of Christ grace and his love and care for us. I find that interesting when you say that the presence of Christ up close exposes the reality of a demon and they express themselves. And it made me think that all of these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and everybody that were constantly fighting Christ were also expressing demons, but they didn't want to be free. So he didn't have permission to deliver them from the demons that were controlling them. He can only deliver people who want to be free. And, and all of the demon-possessed people that he released, he knew their heart. Their heart wanted to be free, but if they opened their mouth, it always came out wrong. But he could read the heart, and so he set them free. But the Pharisees didn't want to be free, and he couldn't set them free. Good point. Light always exposes darkness, and when Christ exposed the lies and hypocrisy of the Pharisees, instead of realizing their error, they were enraged against him. And so they, yeah, they just, they didn't, they didn't want to be changed, they just wanted to put out the light. And the same thing is being repeated today. So, verse 23, I think it's a good summary of this whole chapter, practically. They looked like they're wise with this self-made religion and their self-denial by the harsh treatment of the body, but they are no help against indulging in selfish, immoral behavior. They're doing the very thing they're trying to combat. You know, they, they beat on their bodies or do whatever to their bodies, harsh treatment to try to control themselves. But they're really indulging themselves in their own passion. And this is a self-made religion. Seems like the only two options available in that culture was either to indulge the flesh right, participate in prostitution, orgies, eat whatever you want, or Christians, right, supposedly are not wanting to go that route, therefore had to punish the flesh, right, punish the flesh, try to bring it under control. And Paul is saying, this is a waste of time. All of your special regulations over your bodies are not you draw closer to Christ, right? This is just another form of religion, but it's not the Christian religion. It's not 
helping you grow closer to God. So they've gone from one extreme uh, to another, think that they don't control everything, but in reality um, it's not helping them at all. It's a subtle form of exercising force. So instead of forcing other people, we try to force ourselves. But we don't realize that force never works. And it doesn't work on ourselves any more than it works on anybody else. And it cuts us off from Christ because Christ is the only one who can work in us to do his will through the Holy Spirit. And, and so this back to um, they don't stay connected to the head. They do-it-yourself religion is a, a disconnected religion from Christ. Okay, let's uh, start with chapter 3. Uh, Floyd, would you read verses 1 to 4? If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Now this is a tie to verse 20 of chapter 2. If you died with Christ, to the way the world thinks and acts, why do you submit to rules and regulations? This is the way the world operates, isn't it? So therefore, if you are raised with Christ, think about things above and not things on earth. Why is that so hard for us to do? It's a lot easier to see the things on earth, for starters. I mean, they're, they're always there poking at us, saying you know, how urgent they are and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, but just because something's urgent doesn't mean it's important. And it's, it can be hard to keep that distinction in mind. And if you're like me, somebody tells me to do something, I feel I have to do it. I've never learned to exercise my no button very well. Oh, that's good to know. Are you? I'll be wary. <laughs> if you're going to ask me to do something, I'll be wary. Well, I don't, I, yeah, anyway. Yeah. I just, I'm teasing you back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, ha I can say no, do some things, but it's more mundane things like, I've had, I'll be honest, and, and this I hope doesn't distress you, Floyd, because it involves also something I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> uh, but for the past few weeks, I have had one person after another want me to read something, want me to listen to something, want me to listen to a whole bunch of things, uh, want me to do this, that, and the other thing. And um, I've limited to doing it on Sabbath, which has made me have a backlog of things that I haven't gotten to yet because I can only do so much on Sabbath without endangering my, my own sanity that I'm not having a day off. <laughs> um, so um, I don't know what, what the uh, conspiracy is or where it comes from. <laughs> it feels like a conspiracy. <laughs> to make me busy or something. So anything else from this passage? I think this passage is extremely potent for today because I've been under conviction for weeks that I need to keep my imagination focused on what God is doing because there's enormous pressure from all different places and sources and people saying, oh, you've got to see what's going on. You've got to know what's really going on. And I have no doubt that 
you know, there's a whole lot of corruption going on, but it's not life-giving. And yeah. God keeps reminding me, look, I am doing huge things, but you're not going to be able to see it if you don't stay tuned to what's going on here. You know, where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, that's, yeah, that's like an extreme warning today. How would you state that we died? It says you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You died. And I assume that Paul is inferring from other places where he says this, that we died with Christ. Because therefore you were raised with Christ. You can't be raised with someone unless you died with someone. How does that happen? For me, this has only become clear in the last two months. When I went through the Love Reality Tour about three times, a couple of them live, and I began actually appreciating from Scripture what they were teaching about the Gospel, it was the first time it ever really began making sense to me in my, in my thinking. And, and what Paul is saying over and over is that our flesh, our old man, our whatever label you want to give it, Christ absorbed that. I mean, I'm adding some of my own understanding to it, but Christ absorbed that. He absorbed my old identity as a sinner with all of the baggage and garbage and impulses and everything. And he died and he left it in the grave so that when he was resurrected, that old identity is dead forever. The confusion has come most of my life, even when I begin understanding, is if it's dead, how come it feels so very alive every day? How come I still having all of these old feelings? And it's like, that's not me. I mean, Romans 7, that's not me. I said, oh, if it's not me, and if the flesh is dead, how, how does it come to be so active? And my only conclusion is, that's not even my flesh. That is demonic suggestions planted into my mind that resonate with my weaknesses, and they masquerade as being me. But they're dead. You know, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And for the first time in my life, I am practicing a, an entirely new way of looking at my identity. And I no longer am willing to call myself a sinner. And this really enrages a lot of people. But I've been bothered for many, many years with the AA um, mantra that you must identify as an alcoholic, that you will never be free. And I'm like, this contradicts scripture. And now I'm applying it to the same thing as sinner. Why do we keep identifying ourselves as sinner? Because what we identify with is what we act like. And in all through the New Testament, everybody's called saints. You formerly were like this. And yet they're still acting out. They're still doing bad things. Why? Because they're learning how to act like their true identity. But the true identity is already a reality. It's already true. We are already in Christ. We are holy. We are accepted. We are loved. And when we take hold of this and we actually believe that the old man is dead, and it has no legitimacy. It has no life. And Paul has to keep reminding them, reminding them, reminding us, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. You don't have any obligation to listen to that, to act that way. I don't care how strong the feelings are. Your feelings are not Lord. Your feelings never define your identity. They just tell you how you feel today and your condition, but they are not your identity. And I have to take hold of my true identity. And so I rehearse 
these things. I have pages and pages of verses and declarations that I've been compiling to remind myself of who I really am. And it's really affecting me. It's changing the way I think. It's changing the way I relate to people. It's changing my relationship with God. It's the first time in my life where I've ever had this big of a breakthrough and realized that I am not who I thought I was. What happens is your life becomes hidden in Christ and Christ begins to show and shine out. Um, and then when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Then we will know as we are known. And we okay. can substitute a word instead of life. You could say identity. Christ is my identity. Yeah. And when he is fully revealed, like John says, we don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like him because he's yeah. our identity. This is very helpful because I have a very elderly person in my life who is whose whole life has been governed by fear. And, and out of fear, this person tries to control other people um, and gets very agitated if they don't do what she, promptly what this person wants them to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, you know, lately God has been getting through the, to this person about these different things in in the person's life and the person has accepted every single time god has confronted the person with it but then she turns around and goes back to doing the same thing and it gives me courage to hear you say this about this text and this text gives me courage i think god accepts every time she accepts but then the habit is so strong that it's very hard for her to act in the way that she really intends to act. I think there is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. I think that we're too ready to just throw people under the bus. Yeah. Judging. Yeah. David, you haven't read yet. Would you read verses 5 to 11, through 11? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is adultery. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. <clears throat> in these you once worked when you lived in them. But now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on a new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and, all, and in all. I've always been appreciative of this passage because he says the wrath of God is coming. And then he turns around and says, put aside these things, such as wrath. <laughs> There's obviously a difference in Paul's mind between God's wrath and human wrath. Right. Yeah, as I read through this, I see that it kind of continues on what, what you were talking about a minute ago about this new identity that we have in, in Christ and, and learning to live into that. And I think this also relates to there a couple other places where Paul talks about saying how that, you know, in, in one person, everyone sinned, but then the, the new Adam, the Jesus came and now all can be made righteous sort of thing, which I had sort of an issue with for, for a long time trying to figure out, well, that, how does that work? How is it that just, you know, one person who lived 6,000 years ago, or another one who lived 2,000 years ago can have that effect on, on things. And it wasn't until I was reading a few, a few years ago now, uh, just in uh, 
it was Greek philosophy um, and how <clears throat> they were dealing with this, trying to figure out how is it that you can have little dogs and big dogs and, you know, where the Chihuahuas and St. Bernards and Mastiffs and, you know, some have long hair, some have short hair, some have no tails, some have, you know, the, all these various differences. And yet even the smallest child can immediately tell that these are all dogs uh, and that there isn't and, and will not mistake a cat for being a dog or vice versa or, you know, and, and how, how is this? And they came up with this idea that there was this celestial template that housed the, just the, the essence of, and, and I know in theology, essence has another, another a whole other meaning, and I, I'm not meaning it necessarily in that sense, but that there is a, a, the, the essence of what makes the, the essential catness versus the essential dogness or whatever, and that every dog taps into this source, and that and that, that it's that source that we're sensing when we see this dog, and that's how we recognize it we're, uh, as being a dog versus a cat. And after reading through that, then when I go through and I'm reading Paul, then I say, okay, well, that you know, based on that Greek philosophy, then with Adam being the, the first, the template of, of humans, then every human that comes by then is somehow, we recognize people as they are expressing this essence of what it means to be human that we got from Adam. But then now Christ has come and now there's a new template that's available to us. Uh, and then we can detach from this template that we've been stuck to and can reattach to Christ and get our essence of who we are, uh, the essential nature of what it means to be human and, and whatever. We can get that from Christ who is perfect as opposed to still being stuck with this uh, imperfect template that we've been uh, saddled with previously. And so I, I kind of see this as being the kind of that, that, in that same mode again, that we have this, the, this new model of what it means to be human. Uh, and that, and that if that we can, that it's very, it can be difficult. We can forget and we tend to keep going back to the old, old way of how we I, understood ourselves to be, but that we don't have to stay there. We every day and every minute we have the choice of which direction are we going to go? Are we going to see ourselves in light of who Christ has revealed us to be? Or are we going to see ourselves in the light of, of what we have historically understood ourselves to be? And that, um, and then we can also choose to see the people around us in light of either of those two templates uh, as well. And, and and I think we need to move on to verse 12, verses 12. I'm, I'm going to take the liberty to read this because I think we're going to have to close pretty soon. Uh, Therefore, as God's choice, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord gave you, so also forgive each other. But over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you are called in one body. And be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice that we warn people by singing to them or with them. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. So my latest lesson has been to learn to go through life and all of its trials, which I am I'm extremely overwhelmed by too much to do. And what God is teaching me is to go through with that life with thanksgiving. That's the most important thing I've been learning over the last couple of years. 
is that it's just impressed itself on me so strongly, especially from Scripture, is that Thanksgiving is the most irresistible weapon we can possibly use. And when we feel depressed, when we feel afraid, when we feel angry, anything, if I start praising God, if I start focusing on the goodness of God, it, it doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that we revisit this part of Chapter 3 next time before we hit the wives submit to your husbands. Yeah. That we, we go through that again because it prefaces what he's going to say yeah. next. Yeah. And it's important that we see that in that light. So I, I think our, we probably should go, um, unless there's something, David, that you wanted to say about this passage. Only, the only thing that jumped out at me is, once again, he very clearly said we, we came across something similar earlier, but um, uh, not today, but previously, um, but about how that he points to the key to unity is love. Yes. And the key to all the things we've been talking about is love. I think. I think that's what he's trying to, to come to. Yes. Let's, let's pray. Closing. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for the extra time we had today. We thank you for the spiritual renewal that we have experienced as we have come to understand more clearly what it means to die with you and to live with you, to be raised with you. We thank you that this can become our identity, that you and who you are is who we can become by accepting your life and your identity as our own. May we not attempt to do it by a self-made religion, by doing it ourselves in our own way, in our own strength. May we live the life focused on you and letting you Live out your life within us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.